Hello everyone and welcome to the Unorthodoxy podcast and to the third episode in our series on providence. We've looked at two big sweeping ideas, the doctrine of creation ex nihilo and its connection to God's goodness and the goodness of creation. And then we've looked at the doctrine of the Trinity. And what this means is essentially that love pervades the created order and grants us reality itself. So now in this episode, I want to look at the doctrine of atonement. This addresses too briefly, but hopefully sensibly, the question really of why Jesus died on the cross. This doctrine is something of a minefield within Christian theology. Some of the most vicious theological squabbles, especially in our time, center on this doctrine. And there are misunderstandings everywhere. Still, perhaps naively, I am hoping to somewhat bypass the naughtiness of this doctrine by trying to get to the core of it in a way that, give or take a few minor variations, even a six-year-old could understand. Actually, part of what compels me to arrive at this core is that I have a daughter who has just turned six. And I've been thinking recently, preemptively, about how to explain to her why Jesus elected to undergo such terrible torture. I want to explain this in fairly simple terms without getting too technical, but also without presenting her with bad theology. Obviously, I'll be talking here in slightly more complex than six-year-old friendly language, but You'll know by the end of it, I hope, how easy it will be to translate what I've said here into much simpler language. I guess it will help you to know what I want to steer clear of, for starters. Most importantly, I want to avoid what I perceive to be a trend in atonement theories to center around explaining the mechanics of atonement. The question of why Jesus died becomes very quickly a question of how Jesus' death is part of a larger mechanism by which atonement is achieved. One of the obvious problems with such thinking is that it renders God in the end subservient to the mechanics of a process that must occur before human beings can be reconciled to him. Jesus' death in such theories becomes a cog in a giant nominalist machine, and so Jesus' life gets rendered as a somewhat accidental feature of the salvation story. One of the consequences of this thinking is that our lives before death become less important too. In a great deal of Protestant theology especially, there is still a trend to generate what is known as evacuation theology, where people believe in Jesus so that one day when they die, they will be saved for heaven. This also has something to do with splitting grace and the work of faith too much, which is something that I think the larger traditions like Catholicism and Orthodoxy tend not to do. Yes, there is, I believe, life after death, but there is also life before death. And if Jesus does not save us for this life too, then we're in some rather serious trouble. Another problem with the focus on the mechanics of atonement in some atonement theories is that it sets up this idea that understanding the atonement theory itself somehow is vital to the work of salvation. And then, well, atonement theories quickly become idols, thus one of the reasons for all of that vitriolic squabbling. So let me be clear on this too. We do not have to understand God's saving work to be saved. We don't even have to have adopted any particular correct view of atonement to be reconciled with God. And in fact, ontologizing the analysis or the atonement theory is potentially a way 
to alienate people from the very thing they should be finding compelling. In fact, the very one they should be finding compelling, namely Jesus. With all of this in mind, there is a principle I am working with here, which is that we are not saved by a theory, but by God, and especially by God's work made manifest in the whole life, death, and resurrection of the second person of the Trinity. And this is confirmed through the witness of the Holy Spirit. The most vital thing in the end is to know who saves us. And it is only of subordinate importance uh, to know the answer to the question of how it all works. Oh yes, and this means that the atonement theory we end up with needs to be non-violent. So those are the guiding principles. So now on to the core problem. I've spoken about goodness and love as pervading the created order, but experientially we all know that this does not exactly account for the full range of our lives. To say that there is evil in the world is putting it mildly, and to say there is evil within us too can also seem like a gross understatement. Within us and beyond us, not everything is as it should be. The God who is love makes the world good, and by necessity he gives it its contingent character. Truth is, any universe God could have made would have always had a contingent character, since only God could be absolute. And this contingency sets up an inevitable choice between moving towards its origin and goal, namely the God who is goodness and love itself, or moving away from it towards degeneracy. The choice, in other words, is between being and its fullness, or away from being towards nothingness. To cut a very long metaphysical story short, sin is fundamentally a movement away from wholeness. I've spoken on this subject before here, but the gist is that sin is the culpable violation of wholeness, the culpable violation of shalom. It is what Deuteronomy and that ancient Christian text, the Didache, refer to as the way of death. To move against the goodness of being in any way is sin, and sin leads to death. Of course, just because there is the option to choose against the goodness of being does not mean that it must necessarily happen. But, theologically speaking, this is what happened um, to human beings, as we know all too well because of the selves we contend with and the world we contend in. The fall of man was not inevitable, but it did happen. And so, God set up a rescue mission. St. Athanasius puts down this amazing idea in one of the most brilliant theological works ever written, a beautiful, easy-to-read little book that all of you should have a look at. It is called On the Incarnation. He says that creation and redemption are the same thing. God is, by his nature, a creator. He is always creating. So the important thing to remember here is that God didn't just randomly select one moment in history to take human form and save people. It is in the very nature of God's actions to create now and now and now and now. And so because of this, God always acts redemptively. And when you read the best stories ever told, for instance, you will see evidence of God at work. His redemptive, creative energy is pouring through things. And when you look at nature itself, you'll notice this too. God has always been 
into redeeming the world. Redemption can be felt in little daily things, the birth of a child, the way creation is constantly renewing itself, the way a cut or a wounded heart can heal, the spark of energy delivered by caffeine in coffee or by bodily pleasure. Redemption is at work when our bodies transform dead matter into sustenance, and redemption is at work when a composer takes disconnected notes and weaves them into a symphony. The world is full of beautiful things, and that is true even where there are tragedies all around us. Still, there has always been this sense, and this is still felt deeply by all of us, that this is not the only story being told. We sense that in this post-Lapsarian world, redemption has been and remains partial and incomplete. We can be healthy and young and fit, but age takes us and carries us, and disease brings about degeneracy and death. Good relationships turn sour, and sometimes even our best efforts to avoid the slide into corruption generate the very thing we want to avoid. Entropy has the universe in its grip, too. And so, these two stories exist, the story of constant renewal and the story of constant degradation. Being itself remains good, but it is prone to decay and disintegration. And people have always felt that degradation is in a way going to get the last word. So they have also always felt, and even today we still feel, that the redemptive dimension of the created order is temporary. In the end, it'll all wind down to nothing. We all end up in a grave, all having suffered in various sometimes unbearable ways because of the sin within us and the entropy beyond us. Which is to say, we and this world really do need saving. Well, the crucial thing is that God elects to break into creation in a unique way at one point in history. This is not a discontinuity with who he is and what he's been up to, but a perfect expression of it, the most perfect expression of it, really. It is not plan B, but the culmination of plan A. Whatever ended up happening, God has always been interested in the fullness of being. Of course, one of the most pertinent critiques of atonement theories is along the lines of pointing out that God could have just saved everyone without bothering with the whole self-subjection to torture thing. This may be so, but since God is into the fullness of being, it would seem that the best way to alert people to their salvation is to show it happening in the flesh. Apparently, seeing is believing, and that is still true in some sense. Often, believing is what causes us to see, and often, seeing causes us to believe, and here in the Incarnation, the two meet. The Incarnation is already the atonement in some sense. The moment Mary says yes to Christ and becomes the model for faith for all of us, becomes, in essence, the first Christian, the fullest expression of the salvation plan is set into motion. Because existence is placed at a disadvantage through the degradation of sin and death, that needs to be overturned. What needs to be sanctified is human life itself, since... Human rebellion is the primary cause of all the trouble. So the second person of the Trinity takes on flesh and moves into the neighborhood. If there were any doubts that being an embodied being is a good thing, the Incarnation lays them to rest. 
Jesus takes on a body as if to say, as in Genesis, it is very good that human beings exist as human beings. And then Jesus lives the life we live. He faces the troubles we face. As the writer of the book of Hebrews says in the fourth chapter, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. This is atonement in a nutshell. Jesus faces all the difficult things we face, all the stuff that brings us and others down, but he is not overcome by it. He does not sin. In fact, wherever he goes, whatever he does, he redeems the human experience. When there is a wedding that goes badly because it runs out of wine, Jesus miraculously produces wine. When there are sick people, he brings healing. Where people have been outcast, he welcomes them. Where religious leaders alienate people through their incessant lawmaking, Jesus tells them to calm down and lighten the burdens of their disciples. Even when nature itself is out of whack, where storms threaten to annihilate fishermen, Jesus calms the storm. He sets everything back in its right place. He heals not only human nature, but nature itself. Whatever Jesus touches, he sanctifies and heals and makes whole. Psychologists who study disgust and its relationship with morality point out that we psychologically feel that contamination is a permanent thing. Consider core disgust for a moment, which has to do with how the body itself can feel disgusted by something like food that has gone off. The fly in the wine scenario is what I'm going to use as my primary example. It is all very well to take the fly out of the wine, but the residue of the drowned bug remains in our minds, even if not in the wine itself. We tend to not want to drink the wine, even if the fly has been removed and the wine purified. Core disgust involves feelings of revulsion and nausea. With core disgust, logic does not matter. I can tell you that I've removed all the impurities in the wine, but the feeling of contamination will stay. Impurity has a kind of permanence to it. In our example of the fly in the wine, the wine has been permanently defiled. The thing has been ontologically altered. The obvious solution is to throw the wine down the drain. This is called negativity dominance, the idea that the contaminant has more potency than any positive attributes of a given substance. In your mind right now, just as an experiment, fill a perfectly clean swimming pool with wine and then add a teaspoon of urine to it. Even the idea will disgust you. Nothing you can do will make that pool of wine seem worth drinking from. See, that is negativity dominance. Now consider social disgust, which functions analogously to core disgust. In this, an apparently impure thing contaminates our sense of a pure moral social order. We naturally want that impure thing removed, but the feeling of contamination stays. Permanence is also a feature of social disgust, so is negativity dominance. And this is how sin feels. Often, this is what sin itself does, as I'll get to. There are different ways this is experienced by people depending on which sins we're talking about. Some people are sticklers about sexual sins, while others are sticklers on social sins, and others will obsess about eating the right thing because they feel disgusted by alternatives. 
it is a moral issue what you eat. So, for example, the vegetarians I know are disgusted by the thought of eating animals. And most of us are disgusted, thankfully, by the thought of eating those vegetarians. For different social groups, different things bring about the feeling that the social order, and in fact the order of reality, has been defiled. So in more religiously conservative circles, sexual purity is particularly idolized or idealized, whereas in more woke circles, anti-racism is idolized or idealized. I'm going to work with the latter to explain, but I hope you'll understand that I'm dealing more with the principle here than with the question of who is right and who isn't. Say a heroic figure from history is called out as racist, for the woke, this is ontological contamination. The fly is in the wine, so it is permanently undrinkable. There is nothing redeemable here, so what to do? Well, obviously, remove any trace of the contaminated being. Discard the wine. Tear down the statue, if that's what it takes. I know I am potentially risking psychologizing the idea too much by mentioning this particular example. So, let me say that sometimes there are things that do have a genuinely permanent effect in the metaphysical order of things. We may debate which sins are worse, but there is no doubt that some sins are, in a sense, irredeemable. They cause terrible and permanent damage, both those that are our doing and those done to us. Severe trauma, for example, can be permanently debilitating, can, so to speak, genuinely ruin the wine. I think of those who have suffered sexual trauma, who have been victims of terrible cruelty and malice, and who, as a result, have had their sexuality permanently broken. I think of those who have murdered another human being and who for the rest of their lives sit with blood on their hands. Nothing they can do can change that fact. So how does all of this get undone? Well, Jesus steps into the world, this ontologically damaged world, this sin-tainted world, and instead of being affected by it, being damaged by it as we are, he overcomes it. In this world, you will have trouble, Jesus says, but don't be troubled. I have overcome the world. And so Jesus lives through even the experience of being subject to the worst injustices. He is treated like a criminal, tortured, sentenced to death, and nailed to a Roman execution stake. Even in the accounts of the events leading up to that terrible event, though, Jesus speaks life into the lives of everyone around him. He is not unaffected emotionally by the terrible things going on around him, and I think this is quite significant, but it does not affect his status as whole. When his disciple Peter impulsively hacks off a Roman guard's ear, even as Jesus is wrongfully arrested, Jesus hastens to heal the ear of the man who is participating in all of that injustice. And even as he is dying, he prays, Father, forgive them, for they have no idea what they are doing. Whatever Jesus touches, he heals and makes whole. And even death does not get to have the last say. It touches him, and it is turned into life, into resurrection. So the crucifixion of Jesus is transformed by Jesus into a paradoxical event. What is obviously even in the gospel accounts a gross injustice against the God-man. It is a sign of 
nothing but human ignorance and cruelty, and yet it becomes a sign of life. The cross itself, which is a symbol of death, becomes the tree of life. The point here is Jesus. Whatever Jesus touches, he sanctifies and heals and makes whole. Whatever is broken, he mends. Whatever is diminished, he restores. As the writer of the book of Hebrews says in chapter 9, Jesus did not enter heaven to offer himself again and again as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But now he has appeared once and for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by sacrificing himself. Just as man is appointed to die once and after that to face judgment, so also Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many, and he will appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who eagerly await him. The key thing here is that it is the presence of Christ that makes the difference. How precisely he decides to do the work of redemption is subordinate to the fact that when he is present, the world itself is remade. And we see it remade. And we ourselves are remade. St. Paul talks about how this is a sign of things to come. Christ's resurrection is the first fruits of what God is up to. Yes, right now in the current order of things, life is far from perfect. It is often a mess. And we are far from perfect. But something happened in history that demonstrates the truth. Namely that there is a new world order, a new creation, a kingdom of God where all is as it should be, and it already exists, it is within and among us. And in the end, everything will be made whole. In a sense, it has already been made whole. And so at the right time, at the perfect time, Christ carried our sins, absorbed everything that has been and is and will be wrong with the world and with us into himself, but he overcame it. Because whatever Jesus touches, he heals and makes whole. This is a sign of God's immense providence. And whatever we go through, even the worst that life has to throw at us, if we are in Christ, trusting him, even when our suffering might look like the end of things, the end of us and the end of the world, we know differently. Jesus, in taking on the burden of the world, looks at everything that outwardly looks like degeneration and decay and says, Behold, I am making all things new.